0: Hello and welcome. My name is Joe Frost and here with my co-host Peter Linus, this is Being Human. So it is our absolute pleasure to welcome Dr. Diane Langberg, PhD, expert in trauma counselling, especially as it relates to Christians and within the church. I know Diane through her amazing book, "The Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. I also follow you online. Diane, thank you so much for coming. Peter and I are delighted that you're joining us. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background where you come from, help us place you today.
1: Sure. Um, I guess in terms of the work that I do, uh, I headed to graduate school after college, which was the 1970s. So some time ago, um, things were very different then. I was the only female in my class. There were uh, almost no women, uh, headed to be psychologists and, um, I began working uh, in an office and seeing people, uh, and pretty much started out working with uh, veterans of the Vietnam War. And um, then I, because I was the lone female in the office, I would get women and girls who would ask to see me. It certainly wasn't because I knew anything at that point. Um, And I began to hear very awkward, sometimes cloaked stories of what I now know to be sexual abuse. And I went to a uh, supervisor and said, I don't know what to do with this. I I don't know anything about it. It's never happened to me. I don't know how to respond. And the response to me was, um, women often tell these stories for attention. And your job is not to get hooked. So I went back to the couple of women that had brought the subject up and said to them, I have no idea how to help you, but I'm willing to work with you and see what we can do. And didn't tell the supervisor any more things. (laughs) So I suppose that says something about me and my personality. (laughs) But I, I was not going to tell them I didn't believe them. I didn't feel I had the right to do that. And it changed my life to do that. Um, so here I am, 52 or three years later, I don't know how many victims of all kinds of horrific things I have spent my life listening to. Uh, and I am so grateful that I did. Um, they were my teachers in part and uh,
2: taught me much. And how do you find that journey with your own faith and the church and theological space and around that? Tell, Can you talk a little bit more about your own journey around that and your understanding of it? then as a Christian and as you've kind of biblically and theologically reflected on some of these conversations?
1: Well, I found the Christian world extremely resistant to Mm. thinking that these things actually happened, let alone happened on their premises, Mm. or were done by people they revered. Um, That's been a long and bumpy ride, with a lot of criticism, I guess, going with it. But I I continued to believe the women and began to understand, over the years, that part of what the Church was, which the Church is to be the body of Christ. She's to follow her head. Wherever she doesn't follow her head, something's crippled. It's wrong. Hmm. Um, And what I, had, what I had learned in all of this was a lot of these women were in the Christian world and had been abused by Christian fathers and grandfathers and pastors and youth pastors and you name it. And according to the Church, it never happened. So I began to realize slowly over time that the Church was more honoring of the system than the Church was honoring and obedient to the Lord of the system. There were two places in my life, uh, some years apart, where I basically told God, "I quit. you know, I, I can't do this anymore. I don't know how to carry this, And I'm not being believed, and there were no, you know, you couldn't go get a psychology course on how to work with abuse because there weren't any books on it, you know, except for Freud who said they made it up. <laughs> so it was a very lonely uh, road. And if the weight of the suffering and the evil that was done to precious people uh, was very difficult. To carry. Obviously, I didn't quit. I tried twice. <laughs> um, both of those were very important junctures for me in places where God taught me new things and revealed Himself in ways that were more clear to me and. Uh, I began, I think, to understand a little more deeply what the cross meant to him and now to me and others.
0: Well, I was i was gonna ask actually how in that lonely road and hearing some of the suffering and then witnessing some of the injustice towards those who suffer, what is it that has kept you on the path with Jesus? Well, he
1: has, (laughs) frankly. Um, And studying who he not only is, but who he was in the flesh Mm -hmm. and beginning to recognize things in the scriptures, which I've never heard people speak on, but how outside the box he was, Um, and it cost him his life. And I knew I was outside the box. Fortunately, it has not cost me my life. but I began to see and understand him in ways that I hadn't not ever really heard, taught, or certainly seen myself. And so, in many ways, that very hard road in those places has been a great gift to me.
2: Uh, one of the things you've identified, I suppose, is the the importance of power in all these conversations. Um, and I, I'm fascinated just to kind of understand from your perspective and your uh, incredible experience in this why particularly the church and Christians seem to have such a complicated relationship with power. Why are we so, yeah, why do we find it uncomfortable to talk about, to engage with, Uh, am I right First, is that the root of so much of this and why why do we have such a problem in the church around it?
1: Well, it certainly is one of the roots of this. um, uh, Power in the church or in somebody who calls themselves a Christian or whatever is usually considered a good thing no matter what they do, which obviously isn't true. Um, but power is really rather ordinary in some ways. I mean, the the word basically means that you're able to do something. (laughs) So, you know, if if you have brand new baby in the house, they have power because they are going to wake you up at two in the morning because they are hungry. Oh my goodness. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) power is part of being human. It's part of being made in the image of God. And what we have done with it, of course, is grossly misuse it, twist it, and use it to damage others and ourselves. Um, But it's not a wrong thing. It's a meant-to-be thing. And you'll never find a human being who doesn't have some. Even if they're completely crippled and can't talk, they have an impact on people who stand in front of them. And uh, so it, it, it's a very important part of being human and made in the image of God. Um, and it is one of those ways that we have so grossly misused what he created and certainly not looked like him in our use of power.
0: So when we're looking at this idea of, of power within the church, the fact that power is a, a human characteristic, to be human is to have power. In fact. Your definition that you use in your book of, of is a threefold definition. We have four, uh, but you have three. You talk about uh, to be human is to have a voice, is to have power and to be in relationship. And so it is innately human. And yet you also talk about its corruption. So what what does good, holy power look like? And where do we see its counterfeit?
1: Well... Good power in humans means someone carries in their lives, not just their words, but in their lives, more and more of the image of Christ. And he did it perfectly. I think it's also, you know, when you, we you think about that, he, he, he had all power and he let himself be little, not just as a baby, but on the cross for our sake. And so, I I think that we have not understood those things, we have not studied them, studied his character as a human being, in the way that he responded to power like Rome, or power like in the synagogue, um, and power with the weak and the little. Mm. I think that needs to be done far more deeply than we have done. And that the goal in it is not to have power. The goal in it is to learn how to use what we have in a way that carries his fragrance. Uh,
2: And as our culture feels like it's reflecting quite differently now on how we use power and, and abuse. So you were saying 30, 20, 30 years ago in your earlier days of practice, like there was almost like these women aren't to be believed, they're seeking attention. And there does feel like there's been a pretty significant shift. I mean, how do you see, that occurring in our culture like what's your reflections on that how healthy and helpful is that largely and, and but also are we bumping into any concerns around that
1: well typically uh yes it has shifted and there's much more room for people to use their voice and tell the truth about what has happened to them and how it's affected them however my experience uh with certainly culture but More importantly, with the church, is that that shift has been very small. Because what the church seems to do or think is that the thing to preserve is the system of the church. And so, if you stand up and say, Pastor so and so sexually abused me from the age of 12 to 22, you're going to hurt the system which frankly needs to be hurt, but that's not what we believe. And so we want to protect the system. So we either deny it and say it didn't happen, or we label somebody and say they're crazy or something else. Um, And we keep on going. And we have fallen more in love with the system of the church than with Jesus Christ. Because he says, let them get in their way. Let the little ones, the ones with no power, come
2: to me. How do we shift that thinking? I think there is possibly a little cultural difference between the UK and US, not total. Although I think some of the stories coming out of the US feels like, even on the sexual abuse, there's a defense of the system. I think it's a little different here in the UK. There's probably more naming of that. But still, I think the system is protected. How, How do we even begin to shift some of the thinking around that system protection mindset?
1: Well, I, I, I'm not really sure that I actually know how to do that. I know part of that is living differently and not according to the system, but according to the character of Jesus Christ. I think we need to begin calling things by their right name. And I think we need to understand also and be brave enough to say, oh, it doesn't matter who did it. In other words, you don't keep it quiet because that person did it, but over here with this person who who used who committed abuse, you know, you let them be known. We protect the higher ups. The higher up you go, the more we protect, and we've been deceived. You know, people who are doing protecting are deceived.
0: My, um, my, uh, in my world, we sometimes talk about a, a culture of honoring, which is a really healthy and, and beautiful and good thing. That sometimes gets malformed to this kind of um, platforming of the man of God. This one has the most anointing. This one has the is has the direct access, the direct line, and there's a reverence that is is good. Mm-hmm. There's a recognition of of a, a, a position of leadership and a position of responsibility of service, but that that can get twisted and. And therefore becomes a place not of holiness and of light, but of darkness and, and abuse. Um, yeah, I, I think that's I think that's really interesting what you're saying in terms of the higher, upper, and more untouchable. Maybe mm-hmm. is that it is that that what you're seeing more that kind of sense of the untouchability of somebody towards the sort of centre of the power structure within a church, and is that maybe more team or accountability or transparency, maybe some of the things that we should start to to pick at and pull on in order to be able to see more healthy spaces?
1: Well, I do think we tend to, the higher somebody is, the more we want to protect them because if they're not okay, then the thing that I care about is not going to be okay.
0: Yeah, interesting.
1: Um, And so, you know, I, I want, and I want the system, to feel trustworthy. I mean, we, we don't go to church because we don't really care whether it's trustworthy or not. But we really want it to be trustworthy. And so when we hear things that would suggest it is not, we don't want to hear them. We're protecting not just the system, but ourselves.
2: I find your language around externals helpful there, as in we tend to fall in love, we place our confidence in the externals and, and there are s- severe limitations to that. Can you say something more about that?
1: Let's just take a church, for example, it can be thriving in terms of membership and all those things and the preaching's great and the music's great and all the kind of stuff. But you could also have one of the lead pastors who's having sex with people in the church.
2: And so those externals are the systems, the processes, the programs that are running that often do attract people in, just for listeners maybe aren't familiar with, you know, that's, we see that and think, well, those look good and they draw us in, but we're not looking at the kind of character beneath that.
1: Yes. And they're meant to be good. We long for them to be good. That's not wrong. Yeah. But they can be cover-ups. Yeah. You know, it's... It's sort of, it, it's a much more extreme thing, of course, but you know, it's sort of like somebody have a, a woman having something on her cheek, that she covers up with makeup. And because she puts makeup on it, nobody can see it. But it's still there. And if it's cancerous, it's still growing. But she wants to hide it and everybody else wants it to be gone, because she's beautiful. We so, do that with systems.
0: How do we, how do we unpick that relationship then? Because... You're right. In one respect, we do view some of those demonstrative, evidential aspects of church are people are people becoming christians are there baptisms um what's the compassion ministry like uh, is it well respected within the local community is it good preaching do they love the word is the holy spirit moving we can we can list off all the things that we might put in a checklist to say is this a good and healthy church and we look at these things and we call them fruit and we say well god is moving god is blessing i was reading acts this morning and the, the proof was in the pudding that the church went to Antioch, God was saving people, therefore, the Holy Spirit was covering it, blessing it, his hand was anointing it. And yet, you're also suggesting that some of those external aspects of a church can portray something hidden underneath. So, how do we not in positions of leadership, not leading massive mega churches of 20,000 people? How do we, just average Christians living our lives, how do we engage with that conflict of, on one hand, looking for what God is doing and wanting to get involved, but on the other hand, recognizing that what can be seen on the surface doesn't necessarily indicate a pure and good heart underneath?
1: Well, I think one of the things that has gotten foggy for us is what really is fruit supposed to look And it's not most of the things that you speak of. It's love, it's peace, it's self-control. There's a big one for us. You you look at the fruit of the Spirit of God dwelling in me or you. Those are the characteristics you are to see, whether I have five people in my church or 50,000, and we are uh, brought in by the 50,000. It's seeable. You know, it's, it's something I can touch. And so I, I, I think we don't really look at things according to that which is listed for us in many ways and certainly demonstrated in the life of Christ. Uh, that's the fruit. So you can have people coming and music that's played all over the world because it's so wonderful and everything else. But if the people, who are standing in the front or running it, or sitting in the pews for that matter, do not produce that fruit in their homes, in their jobs, with each other in the church. It's not of God, it's of man.
2: I'm just processing, I mean, I think, because I'm absolutely with you, and I think that character point is it. I'm trying to work out how we do the assessment of that, but it is the fruit, and the fruit is what we see out of the character rather than the system. So systems should be good, and we're looking at that but they can also cover over the the character because i know people listen to going so how do we make that assessment i, I think we are not as good culture these days at judging character and remembering that fruit is the is the key outcome in that
1: yes and i would think as probably with most everything with god that the place we need to start with is ourselves um i think the more clearly we are put ourselves before him wanting to hear from him wanting to be more christ-like in what our lives bear and how we assess things and how we act and everything else Uh, i think that's where it has to start with me and you
0: (laughs) I, i wonder with with that then there's a there's an excusing always when you start with you and you look at somebody else's behavior and you think oh my goodness I have a tendency to do that maybe I need to excuse that or pardon that and somebody else but there's also increasingly quite a a pious judgmental nature in our in our culture arising where we we like to kick people off pedestals not that they should have probably been put on the pedestal in the first place but there is quite a joy in tearing down as well how do how do we navigate the church is a place of healing and of justice and of believing and seeing victims come in and, and, and giving voice and agency. How do we reconcile that with a place of grace, of forgiveness of recognizing that we are all fallen, that we all fall short that every day Jesus picks us up, dusts us off and says, try again and loves us anyway. In this wrestle of, suffering and trauma and seeking justice. How do we navigate that alongside the cry for forgiveness and grace and mercy?
1: Well, I think that one of the things I have seen over the years is that many people tend to push and race to the forgiveness part. And if truth be told, and it get, gets poked and looked at, the reason they want that to happen is because it makes them feel better. Mm-hmm. It makes them feel better either because they know the person or this because of the uh, institution or whatever. Um, it also makes them feel better about all their own things that need looking at. <laughs> Um, I think we have lost sight of the cost of forgiveness. You know, it's not just a few tears and say you're sorry. I mean, if you're talking about somebody, let's take an obvious case, of someone who has sexually abused 15 kids in the church. It's often that, you know, that person cries and they say, we forgive you, and they let the person back into doing child work. That's certainly not loving the children. That's also not loving the person who did it, because you can't live that way for years or sometimes decades and cry and say you're sorry and be changed. Human beings don't change like that. You know, we have roots of things in us that we have excused and acted on, and so we, we want to make it nice. Forgiveness is not a nice thing. It's a highly costly thing. And giving it to us cost jesus his life we want to feel better that's not forgiveness i mean i understand wanting to feel better but it's not forgiveness
2: i was listening to amy r ewing who's a speaker here talking about how we hold forgiveness and justice together uh, at an event for parliamentarians and 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 that, that the cross enables us to do that but it did cost jesus his life to enable us to do that so it doesn't give up on justice and i think tim keller said something similar we can hold these two together and we must hold them together to forgive, does not give up on justice. We can pursue justice in those moments. And certainly for me, that was really helpful. I think one of the other really challenging areas, I think on something like child sexual abuse, for me, it's absolutely clear cut and leaders we would talk to that, that that is absolutely abhorrent and wrong. And there's no justification for that. And We need to pursue justice. I think for some leaders in this moment, they're feeling there's a certain pendulum swing. And sometimes they're almost like, if we speak on anything, if we say anything from the front, that this is a good and healthy way to lead life, the, the kind of pushback of spiritual abuse, of manipulation, of uh, heavy shepherding, and the grayness between that and discipleship is something I've had a lot of leaders talk to me about. Uh, and I wonder, they, they really find it difficult in in some areas to say, how do I lead in this moment? How do I steward power? Do you have any, I mean, do, do you recognize that? Does that? Do you have any kind of Sympathy with some leaders who are genuinely, I think, struggling just how they lead in this moment now.
1: Well, I certainly uh, am aware of that and have concern for them, and realize it's a very difficult place to be. Partly because we, as the body of Christ, have not practiced these things for a long time, hmm. and so we're we're trying. Some are trying to move into the direction of understanding abuse what it does not just to the person who's abused but to the abuser when you want to rot your soul that's one of the ways you can do it is just being abusive all the time (laughs) you know so it's and and what does it look like to walk with somebody that's either been victimized or done the victimizing and we want it to be okay that's not okay it's not going to be okay till Jesus comes and You think about it in a different arena. If you had a child and you needed a babysitter and you got a babysitter and it looked like it was a great thing and they got along and all that kind of stuff and somewhere down the road, you realize that every time the babysitter came, they put some tiny bit of little poison in your child. And it took you months to figure it out because it was so tiny. Now, what are you going to (laughs) do? You're going (laughs) to... You're going to get the person who's putting poison in your child out of the house. You're not going to let them ever come back again because you can't trust them, nor should you. Mm. But they can also be pursued to full repentance and everything else, which will not put them back in your house. You're not going to say, well, uh, you've re- you've cried, you've repented, I believe you, now you can babysit my child. You're not going to do that. We're, we're trying to figure that kind of thing out in the church. Mm. You know, how do you care about somebody who's been poisoning others in the church in some fashion? And we want them to cry and say they're sorry so we can let them back in. And part of the reason we want to do that is because we think that's the right way, number one. And because, if truth be told, most of us aren't really very good at looking at our own sin. And so we sort of explain it to ourselves, <laughs> you know, I, well, I did it because, you know, and I didn't mean it and I'm not going to do it again, even if nobody knows. I mean, we talk to ourselves like that. Our propensity as human, I mean, go back to Eden. She did it. <laughs> the servant did it. That I did it. It's been in us since the beginning of the fall. That I did it is not something anybody wants to say or live out and have it change your life.
0: Do you think it's um, a misunderstanding within our our church culture of what restoration is? The restoration has become synonymous, A, with time, time served. You've You've been put on the naughty step. You've sat there. You've paid your dues. You've served your time. Now you can be restored back to a position of leadership as opposed to restoration being restored back into the body of Christ as a disciple. There is an assumption that restoration means to return to where they had been, as opposed to recognizing that restoration can simply mean coming back into a space of of fellowship and forgiveness and grace. It doesn't necessarily, in fact, it often shouldn't mean a restoration into the position of service and leadership and authority and power.
1: I think that happens all the time. I think there's a lack of humility in that. That we don't seem to realize you know so i you know i cried i said i was sorry i haven't been around whatever for this many whatevers and so i'm fine the, the lack of humility in that is uh not a good sign
2: i want to return just maybe as we close in. To uh, joe did touch on this a little at the start but maybe advice for all of us from your own experience how do we keep our faith as we read it does feel like almost every day, a new story of abuse or misuse of power, particularly within the church, within the body of Christ, which is supposed to be a safer and better and good place. How do, we, how, do we, how do you protect yourself in terms of a piece of advice for the rest of us as we read these stories?
1: Well, probably, uh, first of all, it's a battle. It doesn't stop. You know, you, it, It's not like you figure out, how to manage this and then you're fine when it happens again. It shouldn't be fine, it never is fine. But I I think we have to ask ourselves what it is we're looking for. I think that we still in our dealings with these sins and their effects and everything else, probably err on the side of thinking about the institution rather than the hearts. I think it's wise to study Jesus' relationship to the temple. I mean, he, he went in, he cracked whips, he turned tables over, he made a big mess and a lot of noise, and he walked out. Somewhere down the road, he went in a second time, he did the same thing, and he never went back. So he called them into the truth twice in a very flamboyant, <laughs> noisy way. And when they did not heed him, he took What they were doing, which basically said, we're not going to follow you, we're not going to obey you. He did not act so as to preserve the system. And that's typically what we want to do. We want to make it okay, partly because we're part of it and we want it to be okay, and that's understandable. But we want it, you know, we want people to say they're sorry, we want to change things, we see those things change and we think it's going to be okay now it's never going to be okay on this earth. Nothing is. We get tastes of it, tastes of goodness, tastes of many wonderful things, but it is not going to be okay on this earth. And it's very difficult for us humans to live with that, particularly when it's something we are personally connected. How can you do that with God's house? How can you do that with God's leader? How can you... Uh, we, we push for the things to go back to the way that they were without the problem that was happening. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason we do that, again, is to satisfy ourselves. I don't want this to break up. I don't want this to fall apart. I don't want that pers- person not to be able to preach anymore, whatever. We, we preserve things that God does not preserve.
0: So you've spoken incredibly truthfully and powerfully about the diagnosis that we see in our churches and in our cultures and in our own flawed humanity. And we've spoken a little bit about our responsibility as fellow believers and maybe in leadership positions. Um, And yet actually your career and your, your life's calling has been towards the victims, those who have suffered abuse and injustice um, at the hands of people who claimed that they were working um, in obedience to God. For anybody listening today who has suffered in the church and for those that you have journeyed with in the past, what are your, what are your words of comfort or of hope? for, uh, your offer of resilience, what to them would you like to say in this moment? One of the things that I
1: learned long before I needed it, uh, was a lesson from my father, which I sometimes write about or talk about. He was a Colonel in the U S air force. One of the lead planes over Normandy, um, quite a career and had to retire because something was wrong with his body. And it only increased over the years till he couldn't feed himself or anything. When I came home one time from college, I was talking with him and he wanted a glass of water. So I got up and went into the kitchen to get it. And I came to the door to go back in and I realized he was trying to stand up by himself. He was six, four and a half. So a lot to stand up. And I watched, I didn't. he didn't know I was there. And eventually he just sat back down again, he could not get his body to follow. And I said to myself with no knowledge of what I would do professionally or anything at that point, I was probably a sophomore in college, a body that does not follow its head is a very sick body. And that's what much of the church has become. A very sick body because she does not follow her head. What I want victims to know is that when that's the case, the head looks nothing like the body. They're supposed to match together. Mm-hmm. Doesn't match. It doesn't tell you the truth about who he is and it doesn't tell you the truth about who you are. You are beloved of God. He created you on purpose. He loves you, wants you to know him wants you to grow, wants you to heal. And any institution or any individual who goes in the opposite directions of those things is not of him. They are a twisted body that is not following their head. And in doing so, they are teaching you lies about that. head.
2: Ben, we want to thank you so much. Um, We could continue this conversation. There are thoughts and questions i have but uh, we also want to want to honor the time of you and our listeners so it's been an incredibly challenging and rich and deep conversation and um, i do hope that's been helpful for some of your are listening perhaps who have been through very difficult church situations and we want to be really alert to that Um joe flagged at the start your book redeeming power understanding authority and abuse in the church and in our lives first thank you for your contribution to this incredibly important topic uh, in that book and in your life's body of work and thank you also for spending some time with us today on this podcast and just helping uh, others begin to explore this and our prayer i think for all of us is exactly that the church is sick because it does not follow its head jesus and to be modeling ourselves and our churches on the head that is jesus and your constant kind of pull back to that Has just been refreshingly simple and right and wonderful. And thank you for it. So bless you. You're welcome.
1: Thank you for having me.